0: I sat as far away from the pulpit as I could. Is this a pulpit? Can we call it a pulpit? Hey guys, Uh, my name is Ben. I don't normally preach, but I am today. Uh, We're going to continue our series. uh, Actually, we're almost done with our series, right? Um, in, In the book, yeah, next week will be our last week um, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, talking about the cloud of witnesses. And we get the title of that uh, sermon series from chapter 12 of Hebrews, where uh, the writer of Hebrews is telling us to, um, is exhorting us, run the race well, live well, finish well, Um, And the reason he gives us for doing this is because we are surrounded by what he calls this great cloud of witnesses. And he was referring back to chapter 11 where he's just listed the great men and women of faith that have come before us. We've been looking at some of these stories. And today uh, we're going to look at the story of King David. King David in the Old Testament. Uh, Even if you're not really a Bible person, you're probably likely familiar with some of the story of King David. Um, If if nothing else, perhaps you're familiar with David and Goliath. That's pretty common in the popular imagination. Like We we know that story. Um, But King David is a massive character in the story of the Hebrew people in the Old Testament. And there's so much that goes into his life. There's so many ups and downs and sideways and the different relationships and moments of glory and moments of humiliation. There's so much growth. There's so much um, wisdom. There's so much poetry. He writes most of the book of Psalms. There's so much that is going into this man and his story that it's kind of hard to know on a Sunday morning in 30 minutes, how, how do we talk about King David? Do we just go ahead and tell his whole story or how, how do we do this? Um... And I, I I kind of am tempted to do that because I just love this man. I love his story. I I resonate with a lot of things that happen in his life. But we just we we don't really have time. So I decided, um, if we're basing this off the Book of Hebrews, why why not see what Hebrews chapter eleven says about David? And and it kind of lists David with a bunch of other people. It says this in Hebrews eleven, starting in verse thirty-two. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, Obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So it sort of lists all these people and says, there's all sorts of crazy things that happen through their faith, and it describes all these moments of great victory, and all of these actually happen in the life of David, conquering kingdoms, enforcing justice, obtaining promises, stopping the mouth of lions, quenching the power of fire. These things, we, we see these things occur in David's life as the Spirit of God is with him and as he lives out faith in God. But to tell the story of each one of those things is to basically read all of the Old Testament, which we're not really going to do today. Uh, But one of these things in particular really caught my attention. And if you know me well, you probably know which one it is. It tells us all these moments of victory, conquering kingdoms, enforcing justice, obtaining, gaining promises, stopping lions, quenching fire, escaping the sword, becoming mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight, but in the middle of all that it says this they were made strong out of weakness. Well what does that mean? They were made strong out of weakness. They were victorious, they were warriors, they were fighters, they were people of justice and they were made strong. Well how were they made strong? Well by weakness. Out of weakness. And I see this pretty clearly in the life of David, and it's actually something that has drawn me to David for years, to think through what it is that makes David so special, what it is that makes David so uh, large in the imagination of the, the Israelite people. To the point where when Jesus arrives on the scene, they call him the son of David, or in other words, the true David, the David's David. Like that's, that's how the New Testament describes, we don't have time to get into all that, that's how the New Testament describes the arrival of Jesus as like the true David. So they see David as this great figure in their history, and, and Hebrews describes him as somebody who was made strong out of weakness, and I'm really interested to see what, how does that happen? What is it that makes David so special? What is it about his weakness that ends up resulting in strength? And as a side note, because we don't have time to talk about every aspect of David's story, can I just, can I just share one of my favorite books with you guys? Um, One of the reasons I asked Simon if I could preach about David is because of this book by Eugene Peterson called Leap Over a Wall. This is the story of David. If you don't know Eugene Peterson, he's an incredible, incredible writer, very, very poetic, but he's also a a world-class, was, he passed away a few years ago, was a world-class scholar he taught Semitic languages as a professor and then spent most of his career pastoring a church about this size in Maryland and then, you know, translating the entire Bible, the message translation. That's Eugene Peterson. And, uh, and this book, he just goes through the life of David and it's pretty remarkable. Uh, but for our purposes, I really want to look at this, this phrase, becoming strong out of weakness. And in order to talk about that let me just sort of back up to the beginning of the story of David found in the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. So so beginning in 1st Samuel Israel The the people of God, they they decide they want a king. Up to this point, they've had prophets and judges, which are basically people who are representing the will of God to the people. So when there's issues or problems or decisions need to be made, they go to the judge or the prophet and they say, hey, we need you to to tell us what God's will is in this situation. And then that person goes and speaks to God and says, here's what God says to do in this moment. But they didn't really have civic authority in the way that like a king would. But then Israel looks around to their surrounding neighbors and they say, you know what, we want to be... Actually, like everybody else, we feel a little left out. We feel a little vulnerable. We feel a little too different. And so we actually want a king. And God tells them, you don't need a king. I am your king. And they say, yeah, that's really great. But could we actually have somebody like physical on the earth who would be our king? And so God um, gives in and anoints uh, this guy named Saul to be their king. And Saul is, is like, he's the dude. Okay, Saul is like, he he is a man's man, he's a great warrior, he's a war hero, he's a great leader, people rally around him, he's very charismatic, He, he seems to be really in love with the Lord, like genuinely want to do what's right in the sight of God. And as he begins to lead as king, he continues to just sort of like elevate Israel among the nations. He's conquering peoples. He's he's getting people out of their land, that uh, like enemies that are trying to invade. He's pushing them back beyond the borders. He's he's building wealth among the people. He's bringing stability, security, and peace to the nation. Everything a king is supposed to do. And all along the way, walking with him, is this prophet named Samuel. And Samuel is the guy that's sort of uh, making the king kingship kind of rise up and be established. Samuel's the guy that God is speaking to and saying, this is how I want you to establish this man and this kingdom. And so Samuel is constantly giving Saul instructions. And we don't really know everything that happened. We just know that Saul became very, very successful as king. And we know that Saul became uh, a, a person who was widely known and widely praised among the people. And then in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Um, Samuel goes to Saul and he says there, there's this army that's trying to invade I need you to God wants you to go and 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 bring your army and cast them out of the land and you're not you're not to take anything or leave anything left okay you're not supposed to you' this is not for your uh, for you to gain wealth or like get get spoil from the, the the victory this is for you to do what the Lord said cast these people out the Lord will provide for you do not help yourself to anything left over after you drive these people People back. So Saul goes and he's sort of waiting for Samuel. He's like, Samuel is supposed to be here at the battle, but he's not really here. I'm gonna go ahead and attack anyway. Samuel will get here when Samuel gets here. I'm gonna attack. So he does, and and the Lord is with him, and they, they defeat the enemy and they they cast them out of the land of Israel. And then Saul looks around and he goes, You know what? But these guys had a lot of cool stuff. I I know I'm not supposed to help myself to any of this, but I I did what the Lord said. Like, I, I actually, like, I, I conquered these people. Like, that's the important part, right? So I'm going to go ahead and help myself to all this stuff. So he takes, you know, livestock and all kinds of wealth and possessions. So then when Samuel does show up, he sees that the victory is won. And he goes to, to Saul and he says, he says so it, it's so funny, he goes, um, why do I hear the bleating of sheep? Why, wh- I'm sorry, why do I hear livestock? Did you do what the Lord commanded you not to do? And in 1 Samuel 15 verse 22 it said, and Samuel says, "The Lord has great uh, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices or in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is in the sin as is as the sin of divination and presumption" Is as, this, is, is as iniquity and idolatry. So he says, he says, I know you think you're not guilty. I know you think you're doing the right thing. You're making all the right sacrifices. You're doing the religious thing you're supposed to be doing. But you've disobeyed the Lord, and that to him is as bad as idolatry. You might as well be an idolater because you're not willing to listen in obedience to the Lord. And what do you think Saul does in response he flips out. It's clear that Saul does not want to be told off by Samuel. In fact, he says to Samuel, go make it right with God. No, I'm, I'm not going to talk to God. I'm not going to tell God I was wrong. I'm not going to tell God I'm sorry, but I want you go make it right with God so that I don't lose any favor but I'm going to carry on doing exactly what I'm doing. We're told in the next few verses that at that point the favor of God departed from Saul and Samuel was told to go anoint a new king. We're told a few chapters later that the spirit of God actually was removed from Saul. Saul no longer is God's king in Israel. Wait, 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 because he took a few sheep? Because he took spoil from this victory that he had just won? Huh. Well, for whatever reason, God really doesn't like this act of disobedience. And so he decides that that Saul is no longer the king. And he tells Samuel, go anoint a king. And the words he uses are very specific. He says, go anoint for me a man after my own heart. You guys heard that phrase before? Go, anoint for me a man after my own heart. And we know through the story that this ends up being the boy David. David, the shepherd, the young man out with the sheep, is soon anointed to be the future king of Israel. And not long after that, David begins working in the court, the household of King Saul, even though Saul knows this man has been anointed to take my place. And you can imagine that this this tension that grows up, we're told all about the tension that grows up between them. Pretty soon we're told that actually Saul becomes tormented in his own mind, becomes wildly unbalanced, and, and tries to kill David again and again and again. And David has to flee for years into the wilderness until finally, finally, God delivers the kingdom of Israel into David's hand. David is made king, and he reigns with justice and power and victory because Saul didn't obey the word of the Lord. So then we would expect at that point in the story, great, oh, thank goodness, we got rid of the disobedient king, and now we have a man after God's own heart. Wow. Things are going to be good like we're going to we're going to we're going to have peace and security but not only that there's just going to be this this like love and justice flowing through the kingdom cuz cuz our king is a man after God's own heart and we can always be sure that like that like everything will be taken care of in the most just and fair and righteous way because we have a man after God's own heart And and I don't think we even need to worry about our enemies or the foreign invaders anymore because because the person on our throne is a man after God's own heart. I think the kingdom of God is here. That's almost how we expect the story to go after getting rid of disobedient king and getting man after God's own heart king. But we know the story of David a little better than that, don't we? If if you've been in church at all or or even just around the Bible or heard heard things uh, maybe through the grapevine, you might know that David um, makes some mistakes. David is, is, turns out, not a perfect king. So whatever man after my own heart means, it certainly can't mean perfect. It certainly can't mean doesn't screw up. Because, because David, we see pretty quickly, starts to make some mistakes. And, and there's one really famous one that we, many of us probably know about, right? So um, that's, of course, I'm just going to go through this really quick. That's, of course, in Samuel chapter 11 and 12, where, where David, King David, a man of great power and man after God's own heart, um, sees um, a bathing beauty on a, the roof of a, a neighboring house in Jerusalem. And he watches her. Creepy. Creepy. And then he says, you know what, I actually, I want her to be my wife, but I, I also know, because my servant has told me that she's married, but I, but I also know that her husband is, is an officer in my army. So, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to write a letter to the captains of my army, and I'm going to make sure that things go down in such a way that um, or her, her husband, Bathsheba's husband, is actually murdered and once he's murdered, I will take Bathsheba to, to be my wife. Happily ever after, says the man after God's own heart. And we're watching this and we're going, wait, wait, I thought this was like the, the non-disobedient king. I thought this, I thought this was the righteous one. But I thought this was the guy who understood God's heart. I thought this was the king that we were all waiting for and hoping for to finally sit on the throne and reign with justice, love, peace, and security. I thought that's who this was. What is he doing committing all of these terrible sins? See, when we, when we hold the two people up, Saul and David, we see that Saul, he took things he wasn't supposed to take. And only obeyed half of the command of God. That's pretty bad. David broke all ten of the ten commandments in one go. Adultery, murder, lying, all of it in one go. Okay, so Saul lost God's favor and God's spirit. David continues to reign as king, and even as far forward as the New Testament in the book of Acts is still referred to as man after God's own heart. What's going on? Because if we're just comparing sins, it's pretty clear who's the worst sinner, wouldn't you say? Like, let's let's be honest for a moment, right? What David did was heinously worse than what Saul did. What David did resulted in murder and death and trauma for generations. What Saul did resulted in some people having extra livestock that they weren't supposed to have. Still bad, but if we're comparing sins, David's not a good dude. And yet, he continues to have God's favor. His kingdom continues to thrive. It's not that he escapes consequences, but he does continue to receive God's Spirit, to live with God's Spirit, and is continue, continually referred to as the man after God's own heart. What on earth is going on? Over the last several years, David the story of David has become central to my understanding of the Christian concept of repentance. You guys heard about repentance? Repentance is a big word, an odd, odd word. And for me, for many years, it caused a little like, micro spike of anxiety every time I heard it. Because it was like, um, this, this is where we need to uh, admit that we're really bad and feel really bad. And, and feel really sad, and I don't like feeling sad, um, and so like I would, I would get this little spike of anxiety whenever I heard about repentance. But David actually, um, as I kind of lived into the story of David and, and worked through the story of David, um, especially through this book that I've already mentioned to you, I began to get a new picture of what repentance looks like. See, when David does all this stuff with Bathsheba, when he kills Uriah and, and, and takes Bathsheba unjustly as his wife and, and just does all these heinous, heinous, heinous things, the prophet Nathan comes to David and accuses him. He points out, he tells, he tells him this parable, and then, he's, and then David gets all angry about the injustice in this parable, and Nathan says, this story is about you, man. You're the unjust guy. You're the one who's breaking all of God's laws. You're the one. Do you repent? And it's similar to what Samuel does to Saul, isn't it? Saul, do you think God cares about sacrifice? He cares about obedience, he cares about a heart that is devoted to doing what's right. And so Nathan says to to David, you're the one who's in the wrong, David. Both of these men are called out for their various sins by men of God. And Saul, though his sin seems really tiny, refuses to admit he was wrong. David immediately weeps, repents in ashes, refuses to eat, weeps on the floor of his palace for days on end, and eventually gets up and goes into the temple of God and worships. David has a vastly different response. Uh, I I was with my nephews earlier this week. I spent eight hours babysitting my young nephews. That was a lot, but it was fun, but it was a lot. And I was reminded that one of my nephews, um, uh, who's, who's uh, five years old, he, uh, he is, I, I, I uh, lovingly say that he's like my Patronus. He's like, he and I have the same soul. He's very, very sensitive. That's what I mean when I say that. Uh, and and so, so am I. And uh, so, so this, this little boy, it's, it's interesting because like um, with some children, when they're doing something they're not supposed to do, you have to be like, hey, no, stop that. Right for them to like listen, otherwise they'll just carry on their way. For, for, for this particular nephew of mine, um, all, all you have to do is sort of look at him, and he just begins weeping. I'm so sorry! I'm so sorry! And that softness of spirit is actually something we see happening in the life of David. David is confronted with his sin and immediately immediately admits his wrongdoing, and immediately begins the process of repentance. That's the difference between these two men. And it's really interesting because it seems like God cares more, this might be a controversial controversial statement, cares more about their response to their sin than he does about the sin itself. Don't get me wrong, God cares about injustice. Don't get me wrong, God will make all things right. But it seems that when it comes to the individual heart of a person, God really cares, like almost seems to be preoccupied with not did they sin or did they not sin, but with how did they respond to their sin. Because there are a myriad of ways to respond to sin. There's, we can sweep it under the rug. We can ignore it and try, try to pretend it wasn't ever there. We can, we can hide it and literally lie about it. We can hate ourselves for it. We can blame somebody else for it. We can cancel others or cancel ourselves. There's a million ways we can deal with sin, and God seems to really care about that. See, last week, Simon told us about the story of Samson, which I think was awesome. And that story really uh, was preached as, and I think correctly preached as, because it's written this way, a warning against unconfessed sin. What can it do to you when you lie or hide your sin from others and from yourself and from God? It's a warning. And I don't know if, if you felt this, but sitting in the pews last week, I felt my heart race a few times and be like, oh no, am I Samson? I think that's what it's supposed to do. That story's meant to make us a little bit nervous and think through like, wow, do I have unconfessed sin? Do I have hidden things that I need to bring to the light before God and before others? That is, I think, a healthy way to express the story of Samson. The story of David, specifically his story with Bathsheba and his response I think as I work through it, begins to ring less like a warning against unconfessed sin and more like an invitation to the joy of repentance. The, the joy, I, I did not misspeak, the joy of repentance. I think, I think that David reminds us that repentance is not a burden. Repentance is the putting down of a burden repentance is not drudgery repentance is actually the thing we all most want we we all want it we just maybe don't even know that that's the thing that we're looking for. It's crazy. If you read like the old saints, like the old, the old writings about of people who followed Jesus, I'm specifically thinking of like the Puritans. The Puritans get a bad rap, but man, they love Jesus and they were all about joy. You also read the Puritans. But they, there's a there's book I have called The Valley of Vision, and it's a, 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 a collection of Puritan prayers. And every, almost every prayer they're saying, God, grant me the joy of true repentance, And it's like, sorry, what? What are you asking for? God, grant me the blessing, the gift, the joy, the fun of true repentance. I think as we look at the story of David, we can begin to see repentance and sin, not just a light of warning and careful and watch out. That's all true. That's in the Bible. But the Bible also speaks of repentance as a pathway to great joy. A lot of my thinking about repentance, I'm going to share another book. I brought my whole library today. Um, uh, A lot of my thinking about repentance comes from this tiny book by C. John Miller, also called Jack Miller, written in the 1970s, called Repentance, aptly named, A Daring Call to Real Surrender. And he shares this tiny little story in the very beginning of the book as he's talking about some of the principles of repentance and what he's going to write about. And he says this, just listen to this story for a second. He says, from my good friend, Kifa Sempgani, I have heard about the working out of these principles of repentance in Uganda, where a revival, which began in 1938, has continued up to the present. Kifa reports that the believers there have an unusual honesty in confessing sins. And, as a consequence, the whole church has been filled with great joy. In practice... This means that a grim-faced brother may be stopped in the street and asked by his fellow Christian, my brother, have you confessed your sins today? Have you seen the cross of Christ today? Can you imagine walking down the street, kind of ho-hum, kind of like I'm not, I'm a little down, I'm a little, and being stopped by someone else in this church who happens to be passing, hey, 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 hey! have you repented today? You seem a little down. Have you confessed your sins? Can you, can you imagine? And I think we don't experience things like that. We don't even think that like that could be the problem. Why am I so down? We don't, we don't even think that it could be to do with repentance because we don't always understand repentance as an act that brings us joy repentance is like a celebration, repentance is a holiday, repentance is like the gift that God has given us to be able to live in this world with great buoyancy and lightness and joy because we know that we can repent. So David is an excellent example of repentance and I think that this specific thing about David, the fact that he is ready and willing and eager to repent is the reason he continues to be referred to as a man after God's own heart, even after he screws up. Because I, I got to tell you, that's not his last sin that we read about. That's not the last time. In fact, all the way to the end of his life, he's continue, continuing to make mistakes, and he's, he's getting more and more quick to repent. But in that particular story, of David and Bathsheba and just him breaking all the Ten Commandments in one go, um, and Nathan calls him out and he begins to repent, he, he actually, we, we have in the Bible recorded um, what, what is something like David's prayer of repentance. This is Psalm 51. Um, and I'm, I'd like to just look through the entire thing together. So if, if you want to turn to Psalm 51, please do so, um, and I'll, I'll read it bit by bit. But this is, this is the outpouring of David's heart of repentance in the moment when he's confronted with his great sin. And, and it is this we're going to see in the, in the context of the psalm that it is actually this prayer and this attitude of the heart that keeps David near to God, that keeps David blessed by God, even after David has absolutely sinned against God and others. Okay? So th- this is like really important for us, and I, I think this will give us a, a, a sort of pattern of what repentance might look like. And I don't mean pattern-like formula because God interacts with each of us as individuals. It's relational. It's not just doctrinal. But it does give us a really clear picture of what repentance looks like. So, so David has been confronted with his sin. He's seen unconfessed and unadmitted sin drive Saul cra- like literally crazy. He's seen it ruin the reign of Saul. And now he's, he's ready to repent as he's called out. So Psalm 51, starting in verse 1, it says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. In these first two verses, David really highlights the character of God. Have mercy on me. Why? Because, according to your steadfast love. Because of your great compassion, your abundant mercy, God, would you wipe away my sin? He he highlights the love of God right off the bat. This is so important because I can't tell you how often I have wanted to repent or wished I could repent or really wanted to resolve some sin issue within me. And I thought it started with talking about how bad I am. Like that's what God wanted to hear was me say, I'm garbage, I'm a worm, I'm terrible, I'm the worst. But David begins in this totally other place. He says, you're the best, God. We'll talk about me later, but you're the best. You're loving You're kind. You have abundant mercy. The New Testament says that God is rich in mercy, which means however much mercy from him I consume, he never loses his stockpile of grace, never diminishes. And so I can trust that when I come in repentance, even when I've screwed up as big as David, when I come in repentance, I can begin by saying, you are loving, you are forgiving, you are kind. And I suspect and have experienced in my own life, it is only when I am clear about who God is, how forgiving and loving and kind and merciful God is, that I have the courage to be fully honest about myself. If I, if I can't rest in his love in the moment of my repentance, I will justify and I will blame others and I will hide parts of my sin. If I want the courage to confess to God and others, I have to begin with, I am still loved. According to your abundant mercy, according to your steadfast love. He begins in the love of God. From there, he finally uh, turns inward. And he looks inward and he says, now let's talk about what's going on inside of me. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm not unaware, God. I know what I've done. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. He's saying this. He's saying, yes, I screwed up and I hurt other people around me. And the reason that's a problem is because they are your people. The reason it's a problem that I just killed somebody and, and, and actually like took somebody who didn't want to be taken and did this whole, the, the reason that's all a problem is because everybody I've sinned against is your kid. And the, re- the reason that this is sin is because you say it's wrong. God, it's really about what happened between me and you. It it is about what happened between me and others and that does need to be dealt with. My sin is ever before me. I know my iniquity, but God, I'm really concerned about the fact that I really, really broke trust with you. So he says, you're justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In this place of repentance, David puts himself entirely on the mercy of God. Whatever you say and do, whatever judgment you make is the right call. It's the right call. Anything you need to throw at me, I understand. I deserve it. I think David can only make that bold of a statement coming from a place where he has reminded his frightened, guilty heart that God is loving, God is kind, And anything God sends my way now will be in kindness, will be as gentle as possible. God is not out to get me. God is not out to hurt me. God is not out to crush me. God is not out to ruin my life. God is not out to ruin my reputation. God is not out to harm me. And if I can remind my scared heart of that truth, then I can come fully naked before God and say, I did do bad things, I did screw up, I hurt your children, anything you decide to do now is justified. You decide. You, you decide how this goes from here. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David admits that it's not just that I did sins. This is actually a really important distinction, but we don't have a lot of time to, st- to like, sit on it. But it's not just that I did sins, it's that I am sinful. Um, there, God, um, you, you know that, that, I, that I'm responsible for my actions, that I did make choices that hurt other people. You also know, God, that without you, I am incapable of doing otherwise. I'm not, I didn't just do sins, I am a sinner. I need you not just to deal with my behavior and the consequences of my sin, I need you to deal with the person I am inside. I need you to change my heart. I need you to, like, reach the places in me that only you, God, can reach. And then he says this. I love this statement. Behold, I think this is, like, the theme of this section of the, of the prayer. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in my secret heart. You delight in truth in the inward being. He's saying to God, you want me to be real, not just on the surface, like, wow, what an authentic, hashtag authentic person. You want me to be a whole person so that what's inside is also what's outside, that I'm no longer split and trying to hide things from myself and others and from you. You delight in truth in the inmost being, so I will tell you the truth. I screwed up, and I am sinful, and anything you decide about my sin is just and fair and right. I am at your mercy. I am finally telling the truth. Y'all, this is part of the blessed relief of repentance, becoming one whole person instead of multiple people, one privately and one publicly, one on my own and one before God. I'm finally able to put down the game, to stop, to tell the whole truth. And when I believe in the love of Jesus, when I believe that he wants to restore me and receive me and offer me mercy and gentleness and kindness, I have the courage and the ability to tell the truth. Truth in the inmost being. Another way to say that would be truth from top to bottom, all the way down. I'm being real with myself, with God, and with others. It is a blessed relief to stop playing those games. I want to pause here and just say, this is more for me than for you. I need to say this out loud. Um, Sometimes as preachers, we can fool ourselves and think that if I can preach it, I've learned it. I'm really still learning this. But every time I have tasted this sense of truth in the inward being, you know what the result has been? Absurd joy. Just unbelievable, absurd, like giddy joy. I told the truth. I'm a whole person, and that whole person is sitting in the love of God. Now look what he does. This is, this is cray-cray bananas to me. Get this. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop. That's a, 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 like a root that they would use to wash things. And I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a a something, a willing spirit. Y'all. I just love that David, uh, when he recognizes the guilt of his own sin, he's seeing how filthy he is. He doesn't do what I usually do, which is to say, I'm so, so sorry, God, let me clean myself up. I'm gonna. I'm gonna read the Bible. I'm gonna call somebody and tell them what I did, but you know, not super plainly in in detail. And I'm also gonna gonna like read the. I'm gonna like a journal, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the prayer room downstairs. I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna get back in line. David says something different. He says, "No, no, you you clean me. You you clean. You create a new heart in me." David is so utterly humbled before God and so rooted in the love and, and the generosity of God that he says, I, I, I understand, I didn't just sin, I am sinful. I can't actually help these urges and these desires and these wickednesses within me. You do it. I need you to clean me. Wash me out in your laundry. Is the, the message translation says it. I need, I need you to actually like scrub me clean, God. I need you to restore my joy. I need you to heal the bones that are broken. I need you to bring goodness out of all this badness. So often I think that, that, that um, God can do really good things with the brokenness in my life as long as that brokenness isn't my fault. But God knows that, that even the things that I do that, that hurt myself and other people are things that I can't deal with on my own. I need him. I need you to do something new. I need you to clean me. I need you to fix me. I need you to solve this. I need you to, to actually, like, make me brand new in this moment, and I won't try to do it myself. This is surrender versus self-salvation. And I'm addicted to saving myself, you guys. I'm addicted to it. Every time I realize I make a mistake, I just want, oh, man, I want to pull myself up by my bootstraps, my sandal straps. I really, like, I, I'm, I like, really, really want to get it together, and I really want to show God how, how much I'm going to get it together and how serious I am about this. But David's first stop on this train of repentance uh, before he tries to get anything together is to say, you, you do what I can't do, clean me, clean me, save me, clean me. This reminds me of a picture in the New Testament of repentance um, that I love a lot. It's the picture in um, John chapter 13 when Jesus begins washing the feet of his disciples. And Peter, being Peter, is like, no, you'll never wash my feet because you don't serve me. I serve you. It's true. That's true. And then then Jesus says to to him, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Peter says, oh, well, in that case, uh, wash my whole body. I need a sponge bath, please. And Jesus is like, well, actually, um, you're already clean because of the gospel that I've shared with you. It's just your feet. And it's this beautiful picture of Jesus saying, no, 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 you're saved. The gospel is, is, is in you. Like, you have received Jesus. You've trusted Jesus. You don't need to worry about whether you're in or you're out. But you got some dirt on your feet today. Would you let me clean it off? And when Jesus says, do you understand what I have done for you in that moment in, in John chapter 13, I think what he's saying is, do you, do you get that this is more than just like a physical foot washing? I'm showing you something different. And then he says, now that I've done this for you, do it for each other. This is where things get really crazy. This is where things get really crazy. This is where Jesus invites us to allow him to scrub the dirt off our feet in repentance. Let him clean us, let him cleanse us, to humble ourselves enough to do that and to allow that to be done by his physical body on earth, which is now the church. To allow Raya to be Jesus to me and and cleanse me from the guilt of my sin. To allow Chris to to speak the heart of Jesus to me and, and cleanse me from the guilt of my sin. And, 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 and I, I know I'm sort of like m- making a metaphor of that foot washing moment, but I think Jesus does it when he says, uh, do you understand what I've done for you? And, and the one who is clean, and he begins to talk to Peter in this way, right? Uh, but I think what he's trying to get us to understand is, um, I actually, I actually um, can't clean myself. I need Jesus to do it. And that Jesus wants to use his physical body on earth to cleanse me from the guilt of my sin. This means when I confess, when I stand in the love of God, when I acknowledge the truth inside, and when I, when I ask for cleansing, I actually can do so with a brother or sister in my church. I can go to Josh and I can say, Josh, this is where I screwed up and this is where I am screwed up. And I believe that Jesus loves me and I feel really dirty. And Josh... Because, because the Bible calls him a, a priest, a royal priest before God, gets to represent God's heart to me and gets to say, Ben, I see you, and you are forgiven. God, God forgives you. God makes you new. God cleans you. God has made you absolutely brand new. He blesses you. He loves you. Talk about joy. You want to get flooded with joy? Confess anything, big or small, to a beloved brother or sister in Christ and allow them to be the voice of God to you saying, you are forgiven, you are clean. And in like actual physical time and space, here and now, there's a person standing in for God who is able to tell me like, I'm okay. Me and God, we're okay. Like, I I I am clean. The bones that were broken have been made glad. And, and, and if you want this, restore to me the joy of my salvation, man, that is a way to restore the joy of salvation. And this is really important because that, key, that, that phrase, the joy of salvation, is key to this whole business. I told you, this, this, the life of David is a calling to the joy of repentance, the joy of my salvation. When I forget the joy of my salvation, that's when I go running after sinful things. When I forget that all joy, all pleasure, that everything I could possibly want is in Christ, is in the salvation offered through Jesus. When I forget that, I will run after literally anything else. And the solution in repentance to my sin is not for me to get kicked when I'm down. The solution is not for me to hate myself. It's to look to God, recognize his love, be honest about what's going on inside, invite him and others to absolve me, clean me, cleanse me, and then re-experience, oh yeah, all the joy I wanted was here in the first place. Thank you, God. C.S. Lewis says that the good man is sorry for his sins, but not sorry for the fresh grace that they provide. And I think this is what he's talking about. He's des- like I'm desperately sorry for what I did and how broken it was and how much it hurt myself and others. But you know what I'm not sad about? the restored joy that I've experienced in repentance because now I remember where my true home is. Now I remember where my true joy is. So now, after he's done all of this, he finally does the thing which I usually try to do right off the bat. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. So he starts talking about all the things he's gonna do now. I usually start there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. Here's what I'm gonna do. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna I'm gonna do this thing. I'm gonna call this person. I'm gonna I'm gonna journal this. I'm gonna read this. I'm gonna I'm gonna go spend time in the prayer room. I'm gonna do all this stuff. I'm gonna do. And sometimes I hear Jesus just be like, stop, 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 stop. Have you remembered that I love you? That I'm rich in mercy? Okay. Tell me what's really going on. Tell me the truth. just be real. Okay, do, do you want me to clean you? How about I bring someone else from the church in to, to, to clean you up? Do you want some joy again? Did you, do you miss joy? Like, did you, do you want to be happy for a minute? Like, Salvation. The joy of my salvation. I'm just going to pour that out on you in this moment of repentance. Okay, now you can go do stuff. Now you can go act it out and, 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 and actually play these things out in action. Now, now go, go, yes, go to the prayer room, but go enjoy. Yes, go to, go to church, go to your small group. Yes, journal and, and, and read the scriptures, but, but do these things with the assurance of acceptance and welcome. Don't, don't do these things to earn what is freely given. Like, like, yes, act out your salvation, praise him aloud in the the assembly, sing the worship songs, lift your hands, but do it with the assurance that you are restored into the joy of your salvation. Do you guys see how repentance can be like a lot of fun? Crazy talk, but it's true. It's such a good time, but when, when we can remember this, right? And then he says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the promise of restoration. God, we've dealt with the stuff. I've remembered your love. I've told you what's true. I've admitted my wrongdoing. I've thrown myself on your mercy. I've asked for you to clean me, and you have. You've restored the joy of salvation to me. So, of course, I break out in song and I do all these things in response. And God, and not only that, but now I see it's not just a heart thing happening, but that repentance is causing even the world around me to begin to flourish. So often I look at the circumstances of my life and the ups and downs and the tense relationships and the issues and problems and and questions, and I go, what is wrong, God? What is going on? What is wrong? I want, could you just change that thing? And so often when I'm like, God, change and fix this problem in my life, this like practical problem, I've sensed the spirit bringing me back and going, repent, begin here, begin with you and me, Ben, Be- begin in confession, repentance, and humility, let me restore joy to you, and you will erupt in praise, and that will cause some of these things to begin to resolve, that's where the flourishing of life comes from. Repentance is not just spiritual, it's deeply, deeply practical. This is how we change our lives, you guys. Like, I mean the stuff of our lives. Because as we change, as we are filled with the joy of salvation, it begins to cause the very circumstances of our life to be different. Repentance is a lot of fun, yeah? Worship team, could you come up here? I'm a little bit over time, um, but I just want to end with this thought. Uh, repentance and restoration is possible because we can approach God with an assurance of His love. And in that place, we can be deeply honest and and deeply at His mercy. And in a moment, we're going to take communion. There's gluten-free on this side if you need it. We're going to take the bread and dip it in the juice. And this is actually something Jesus has taught us how to do, to remember the truth that however dirty and broken and muddy and gross we come to Jesus, he is able to cleanse and restore us. So he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And my blood, which is poured out for the sins of the world. This is really important because the blood of Jesus atones for my sins, which means my blood does not atone, which means however much self-punishment and self-saving and self-hatred I try to exact from myself for my own sin, it won't solve the problem. But Christ's blood will. So I begin repentance by receiving afresh the broken body of my Savior, the poured out blood of my Savior, and remembering this is why God is able to accept me, the sinner, and begin to work out all of the brokenness that is within me. So in this moment, um, uh, t- take take a moment with Jesus before you come and get your elements, your bread and dip it in the juice and and take that. If you're not a Jesus follower, don't worry like you don't have to come to the tables. It's not weird. you can stay in your seat um, but but if if you are, take a moment with Jesus and if if as I've been talking about repentance and sin, like something has risen in you like, ooh, I need to think through that one. I think I've messed up there. I think I am messing up there um, Resist the temptation to promise God all the things you're going to do to fix it. Resist that temptation. And and just look. And I mean physically look at the bread and the juice. Like, look. And remind yourself, this is God's solution to my sin. So I can come and be honest. I can come and be real. And trust that he will receive me, cleanse me, and work with me. Yeah? Great. I'm going to pray and then the tables will be open. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Really. Thank you that when you said, when you came on the scene and you said, repent and believe the good news, you were, you were actually sharing good news. Thank you. Repentance is a gift, Lord. Help us to remember. Help us to repent in joy. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. Clean us where we've been rolling around in the mud. Help us tell you the truth. Jesus, we resist the temptation to fix, solve, and clean ourselves. We trust you. Jesus, as we take communion, would um, would you remind us? Remind us of the power of your blood and broken body. And Lord, if we need to um, bring somebody else into our repentance, would you give us the courage to do that, knowing that we are secure in your love. We're grateful for you, Jesus. In your name, amen. The tables are open.